We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. It is February 29th, which uh, you don't get to say that often, once every about four years. So this is a leap year and it is an extra day in February and uh, the end of Valentine's month, which as all of the regular listeners know, I love Valentine's Day. I love the pink sparkly of everything. And I kind of carry that throughout the month. And who am I kidding? I carry that throughout basically the whole year because I love pink and sparkle. But happy leap year to all who celebrate. And a lot of news happened uh, yesterday afternoon. So we have uh, quite a few things to discuss. Uh, Two are related to former President Trump. The first is that the Supreme Court agreed to hear Trump's immunity case relating to January 6th. So uh, the Los Angeles Times, of course, is is, kind of whining about it and saying uh, this headline, the Supreme Court announced Wednesday it will hear arguments and issue a decision on whether former President Trump is immune from prosecution for the January 6th mob attack on the U.S. Capitol. Even if the justices ultimately rule against Trump, their decision to intervene now will delay his trial for several months, casting doubt on whether the criminal case could go to a jury before the fall election campaign. And you can just hear the Los Angeles Times reporters screaming at the sky uh, because the Supreme Court has rightly agreed to hear this very important case. Because remember, this is not about Trump, really. This is about presidential immunity as an issue. And so this coming from NBC, the order said the court would hear the case, which could take months to resolve, the week of April 22nd. That timeline allows for a ruling by the end of the court's regular term in June, which is faster than than is typical when the court agrees to hear arguments, but not as fast as prosecutors from the DOJ wanted it to be. The legal question from the court that they will decide is whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office, the order said. So let me read that again. The court will decide whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? So you will remember that the D.C. Circuit Court that uh, held that that President Trump could still be prosecuted, uh, their, their opinion um, fell on a very weird and, and I think, um, wrong line in terms of the precedent that should be established for presidential immunity. Like legislative immunity, the issue should turn on uh, whether the acts involved 
um, that are alleged to be criminal are official acts under color of his presidential authority in the executive branch or whether they were made in his personal capacity while he happened to be the sitting president of the United States. And so we already have um, on uh, Supreme Court record, for example, a Clinton versus Jones, which was the civil case that, um, and granted, that's not a criminal prosecution, but still, um, there is liability for even a current sitting president for acts that occurred prior to him taking office. So there wasn't this immunity shield for everything just because a president um, is, or a person is now in the office of president. And similarly to legislative immunity, I mean, imagine if uh, Congress, which doesn't have term limits, and I think they should, uh, but Congress that doesn't have term limits would be shielded from criminal and civil liability during their full tenure in office for things that happened either before office or in their personal capacity. That wouldn't make sense because then they would be above the law. But if uh, members of Congress did not have legislative immunity, then this would open the door to political attacks and for a chilling effect on the operations of government because uh, then while you're still in office or even after you leave office, which is what the D.C. Circuit said, is basically that as soon as a president leaves office, his immunity lapses, then it would create a chilling effect and also an incentive for political opponents uh, to go after former presidents as soon as they leave office. And it would have a chilling effect on the basic operations of government. Because imagine if a president, considering how to respond uh, to a, an act of war, considering to respond to um, a disaster, even something like the COVID pandemic. I mean, I know a lot of people uh, disagree with, and I'm one of them, uh, with the COVID response um, from President Trump in terms of Operation Warp Speed. Um, and while he didn't mandate the vaccine, and that was a very good thing, um, he ceded a lot of authority to Dr. Fauci, who ended up uh, these ridiculous lockdowns and, and measures that had no real basis in science. And, um, and so imagine, though, if years later, when we're looking at this, and hindsight is 2020, uh, if we're looking at this, and now President Trump could be held liable for how he handled um, some of those things that were clearly within the scope of his executive office, uh, that just, that would have a, a, a damaging effect, a lasting on the presidency. And so where I think the D.C. Circuit got it right is that they said that there still is liability for personal acts. And um, and you can hear Copper in the background. He's very excited to play this morning. And uh, and I think you're arguing in front of the Supreme Court, aren't you? Um, <laughs> so you can always follow them, two dudes underscore Copper and Todd. And when they don't bark in the background, I always get messages from um, listeners saying, I didn't hear him today. So he's uh, very vocal this morning. But uh, we went on a long walk. But anyway, the uh, D.C. Circuit got it right when they said that um, that there is not immunity for some acts and certainly not acts that are after you leave office, but um, and, and that presidential immunity is not absolute for the four or eight years that a president is in office. But where I think they erred and what I hope that the Supreme Court reverses is uh, is to say that liability should not lapse. It should be a distinction of whether the acts that are alleged to be criminal or whether it's civil liability um, that should turn on whether those acts were official presidential executive acts or 
personal acts. Um, so we'll see how that uh, that case goes. That is going to be argued uh, for oral argument, and you can always stream those arguments if you want to listen to them. I anticipate this will go several hours. Uh, they will start at 10 a.m. on that day of, um, so it will be the week of April 22nd. The court uh, likely will set a specific time further down the road, and then um, they will probably take a a couple of months uh, to rule, but that will at least be before the November election because their regular term um, ends over the summer. And they're still sitting on the ballot case, which is the second uh, major news piece from yesterday. They're still uh, sitting on that ballot case that arose out of Colorado and the Colorado Supreme Court taking Trump off the ballot uh, and uh, due to this 14th Amendment, frankly, absurd uh, argument that's reading into the 14th Amendment and having no uh, clear definition or limiting principle of what constitutes a so-called insurrection and saying that even though there was no trial for President Trump just because uh, where he had an opportunity to confront witnesses um, and to uh, put on his own evidence, um, it was a, a separate case that was brought because there was a finding in that case that he participated in an insurrection uh, then the Supreme Court said, yes, um, he should be taken off the ballot. And now, uh, just late yesterday, an Illinois judge announced that former President Trump has been removed from the state's 2024 Republican presidential primary ballot. And that judge cited his role uh, in January 6, 2021, in the Capitol riots. This coming from Fox News. Cook's, Cook County Circuit Judge Tracy Porter barred Trump from the Illinois ballot one month after the anti-Trump challenge was dismissed by the Illinois State Board of Elections. And Illinois goes to the polls March 19th. Illinois is now the third state where Trump was booted from the ballot after Colorado and Maine. But those decisions were paused pending an appeal of the Colorado case to the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, so Colorado, of course, that's coming up in early March. Super Tuesday is uh, next Tuesday on March 5th. And um, and Trump will appear on the ballot. But what, but but voters who go to the polls in Colorado won't know if if their vote in the primary, if they cast it for Donald Trump will count. Um, so hopefully we will get an opinion from the Supreme Court even as late as Monday. And, and of course, my view on that is that Trump absolutely should stay on the ballot. And whether you plan to vote for Trump or not, um, again, this is not about Trump. Ultimately, it's about a matter of precedent and what the Constitution uh, provides for the country overall. And these precedents will have long, long term impact long after President Trump um, is not running and, you know, he's not the head of the party because um, all of these eras do come to an end. I mean, the Reagan era ended and then we move forward and all of these things um, are going to have a major impact on the United States on uh, how we we do our elections. And so I'm hopeful that the current composition of the U.S. Supreme Court will see that it will not just be about uh, Trump and and whether they however they feel about him but that they will view this and rightly hold an opinion uh, that is good for the country in terms of precedent. So um, we should be praying for the Supreme Court on this. And, you know, they've gotten a lot of things right with this current composition, but it's always concerning um, because you don't know whether they will end up um, finding some kind of 
tertiary little issue and 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 the, then they become myopically focused on that and then it's a very narrow opinion that somehow uh, takes Trump off the ballot but they try to preserve um, the the precedent for the future and I could see them doing something like that where it's a very narrow opinion where it's uh, literally construed just to him and they say it really has no precedential value um, that would in in my view also be a miscarriage of justice um, Trump should be on the ballot and those who want to vote for him should have an opportunity uh, to do so and there is not a constitutional reason um, that that Trump is disqualified from the ballot a lot of people on social media are suggesting that you know this is a matter of free and fair elections well, you know, no, if someone is does not qualify for the office, like say that they're under 35 uh, or they're um, they were not a born citizen. We do have qualifications under the U.S. Constitution in order to run for office. And those things are very clear. And so it's not just a matter of free and fair elections if someone is disqualified based on an actual constitutional reason. But remember, the state of California wanted to ban uh, Trump from the ballot in 2020 because he wouldn't he refused to release his tax returns. I mean, that that is so extra constitutional. And even though, yeah, has there been history and precedent that every other president has done that? Sure. But I mean, Joe Biden is the first president not to sit for a cognitive exam. And I don't hear Republicans rightly suggesting that he should be kicked off the ballot for that. That's an extra constitutional uh, metric and 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 quality. So. Um, that should inform voters. Um, I think it's a bad decision on Joe Biden's part, but it's not something that goes to the Constitution and the rules. So we always have to be concerned about originalism. And the last thing, uh, really quickly, and we're going to carry all of these topics over into the next segment with my next guest. Uh, but the last thing that came out yesterday is that Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky said Wednesday that he will step down as Republican leader in the Senate in November. McConnell, 82, this coming from CNBC, revealed his plans in an address to the Senate where he currently serves as minority leader. McConnell, who is the longest serving Senate caucus leader in history, plans to keep his seat in the chamber which he took in 1985, but he has said that he will step down as GOP leader as of November. So his current term ends in January 2027, because remember, senators have six-year terms. And uh, Axios said this, under McConnell's leadership, the Senate successfully confirmed three conservative uh, Supreme Court justices and more than 200 lower court judges shifting the ideological balance of the courts to the right. I would suggest more toward the Constitution and originalism, but okay, Axios. And uh, that is one thing, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a super big fan of McConnell for a lot of reasons, but in terms of judicial appointments, he understood the assignment. Uh, he got it done under the President Trump's administration and also in the last year of Obama held that Supreme Court seat open, which under the Constitution, yes, he can do. And thankfully, we have Justice Gorsuch because of it. So who is going to replace McConnell? Well, we might speculate a little bit on that when we come back here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are talking about the three major headlines that dropped late yesterday. First, uh, the Supreme Court will hear Trump's immunity case relating to January 6th, the week of April 22nd. And that timeline allows for a ruling of the courts uh, by the end of their regular term later this summer. And they are still sitting on the uh, Colorado case on the uh, booting from the ballot. And as of yesterday, Donald Trump was taken off of an Illinois ballot by a Cook County judge. So uh, Illinois becomes the third state after Colorado and Maine to kick him off the ballot. Supreme Court still uh, sitting on the Colorado case. And then finally, uh, Mitch McConnell announces he will step down as minority leader in November. Who will replace him? Well, some are already floating uh, some ideas of other GOP senators. So joining me now to discuss all three of these stories and give some good perspective uh, is Ryan Fournier. He is the founder of Students for Trump and um, has been in D.C. politics as an insider for quite a while. So Ryan, um, let's start first with Mitch McConnell and uh, announcing he will step down in November. Um, First, a lot of people are asking, why is he waiting till November? Why not now and kind of oversee that transition uh, ahead of the the presidential election right and and it's good to hear from you jenna i hope you've been doing well uh and to all the listeners you guys have an amazing host here um you know i have to say this mitch mcconnell's time ran up a long time ago when it came to this stuff you know he did good under president trump i i agree with what you say when it comes to the judicial appointments and getting you know some key legislation pushed through um, but I think a lot of the things that he's done after the fact have really not helped the party or the movement, especially when you look at um, where the establishment is now, right? You look at Paul Ryan, he's out. Liz Cheney's out. Mitt Romney's going to be out. Adam Kinzinger's out. Kevin McCarthy out as speaker. And now Mitch McConnell. Um, one really key important thing here that people just don't get is, is, you know, this guy's been in since, I think, 84, 85. He became uh, the majority whip in 2003. You look at the national debt in 2003, it was uh, just like $6.7 trillion. Uh, as of yesterday, it's $34.4 trillion. He becomes the GOP leader in 2007. 
Um, the timeline of his career, uh, you know, the, the backing of the wars that we've been in, the, the endless wars. You talk about Ukraine. Uh, you talk about him helping the Democrats, sending billions to Ukraine, helping the Democrats advance restrictions on 2A rights after Uvalde happened. Uh, he tried to bait and switch us on border funding on behalf of Ukraine and Biden. Basically, you know, they weren't going to do it. And I, you know, you probably saw this as well, unless it was going to be coupled with funding for Ukraine. Uh, so they will not help us on the southern border or pass a bill to fund, uh, you know, more ramifications or fund more forces uh, for the U.S. Border Patrol unless it comes with Ukraine funding. Um, and one more notable thing, too, which Tucker Carlson explained back in, I think it was probably 21, um, where he's saying that. If you go and pardon Julian Assange, we'll secure, you know, these impeachment votes against you in that last impeachment. So these were all things that I think miffed me. I can respect the fact what he did under Trump with the judicial appointments. But I believe at this point he should have stepped down yesterday. We need new leadership if we want to go into 24. I think that a new uh, leader for the party in the Senate would help us win elections, especially if it were somebody like Rand Paul who is overwhelmingly getting blasted across the Internet as the preferred candidate right now. Um, and then you have John Cornyn, who is coming out and saying that he wants to get involved in this race. But after all of the stuff, you know, and he's also attacking Ken Paxton, the, you know, the America first stalwart attorney general we have there uh, on the Internet saying, you know, uh, I think the quote he said yesterday, Ken, you won't be able to vote because you can't vote from jail or something. Uh, insinuating that Ken Paxton will be going to jail. So, I mean, there's a lot to take in here, but the time, you know, should have happened years ago. Uh, glad it's happening now. Wish he was, you know, stepping down yesterday because it would truly help us. Uh, but I think that there's a bigger play here with that as to why he's staying till November. Yeah, really uh, interesting analysis. Uh, Ryan Fournier, my guest this morning, founder of Students for Trump. And uh, yeah, it, you know, when you mentioned that uh, Mitch McConnell took his seat in 1985, to give perspective on this, I was born in 1984 and I am turning 40 this year. So he has been in office literally since I was one. I mean, th that's just, that's ridiculous. And wow. I don't think how the founders intended it, right? Um, because it, originally... Um, not only were uh, United States senators appointed by state legislatures, um, it wasn't until, unfortunately, the 17th Amendment um, then had the popular vote elect uh, U.S. senators who now have no term limits. Um, but you know, people just didn't live that long. And people also were not career politicians. They were statesmen. They had other things to do besides go and power grab in Washington. Um, but you're right to point out um, and, and to agree that, you know, he, he's done some really good things. Definitely. Um, the judicial confirmations is one of the few I can think of. But um, but this does show right. a a a change from and I think that President Trump really ushered this in in 2016 and a change from the establishment, um, like kind of losing Republicans into a more um, into a party that is more pro patriotism. And I know that, you know, you and I um, have talked a lot about Ronna McDaniel. I'm glad that she's stepping down because um, she hasn't exactly been a winner 
But um, with right. the whole Make America Great Again movement, getting more younger people involved, that has actually been a very good thing, I think, for the GOP. And so who do you see as um, someone that could step up and take Mitch McConnell's position and not be an establishment figure that's going to do, frankly, as much damage to the America First movement and be as divisive, but to actually lead the party into uh, you know, the next decade? I would say hands down Rand Paul. I think he's a reasonable guy. I've met him before. I had the honor of being on a bus tour with him to help, you know, save the Senate down in Georgia um, back in 2020. He's a great guy. He's a great candidate. And I think that you need someone like him who can come in and, you know, sort of help unite things. Um, And, you know, when you look at the RNC, this is another big thing that's a concern for me is, you know, you, you know, we get rid of Rana, and that's great, but you still have these committees which pick these people, right? So if we don't have internal force, um, you know, sort of going into this, right, when we're talking about this year, when we select the precinct, uh, precinct committeemen or women, uh, and we get these people on the National Committee for the RNC, those are the ones who make the votes to determine who is going to be the new chairman. So we have to go overtime, um, you know, between now and then, within each of our states, right? We've got primaries all across the board happening, uh, but this stuff is coming up very quickly. So I have to encourage, you know, the listeners, look up how you become a precinct committee man or woman because you help determine who these people are. Um, And we want to get, uh, I know Laura Trump has launched a bit for co-chair. I know Michael Watley uh, was tapped for, you know, being the, you know, the chair of that. but I do have my reluctancies with some of that stuff. I, I know how these internal things work. You know, if Trump says he wants Watley, I agree with that. But what are they going to vote, right? So that's why it's very important and critical here that we do that. But no, Rand Paul would be the best option, I think, for us. I think he could help get younger voters. He's a smart guy. He knows how to get out there. He knows how to break down a message to where it's understandable like Trump. Um, and I think he's really likable. So that would be my point. And, you know, to add on to what you just said about bringing young people into, um, you know, into the fold, that's been one of the things that we've been fighting, you know, for for a long long time, because you and I both know the Democrats use the college campus as sort of a roadmap to getting to the White House with carrot stick approaches, promising things that they will never do that sound good on paper, but will never pass muster, uh, whether it be in Congress or the Supreme Court. Uh, They use that. Now, the RNC has done an absolute terrible job, uh, especially under the four years of Trump when it came to youth engagement. I saw probably four to five youth uh, directors, as they call them, come and go because they were underfunded. No one cared about their department. And any time we worked with them, either things never really panned out to what they should have been or it just never happened. So that would be another big push that, that I would say that I would help push would be reforming the entire youth focus uh, within the RNC. You know, we saw it with Trump. It wasn't just campaigning for votes, you know, during the election year. It was a 24-7, all-year-round type thing, going after votes in the black community, the Hispanic community, showing them, you know, that we want to help and actually give change that the Democrats have promised and was never delivered. Yeah, and, you know, Trump actually made 
the Republican Party kind of cool. I mean, you know, that, that it yeah. wasn't just yeah. for sort of the, um, you know, the the older generation that's, um, you know, my parents' age maybe or or above um, to engage young people. And it was the same thing that Obama did, um, frankly, just, I mean, obviously drastic night and day policy differences, but in terms of just the appeal to uh, younger voters to engage and actually participate in civics, which is a very good thing. Um, but but I agree with you that Rand Paul would be amazing. Um, I don't know if he's going to uh, necessarily put his hat in the ring um, in terms of how the, the Senate selects their leader. Um, but sources of mine on Capitol Hill are suggesting that either um, John Thune uh, or Senator uh, John Barrasso from Wyoming um, may be uh, the, the two that the Senate is looking at. And for those who uh, maybe aren't aware, obviously, uh, Barrasso is uh, currently the third ranking Senate Republican as chair of the Senate Republican Conference. And um, Thune is currently the Senate Minority Whip. So they both are in leadership already in the Senate. Um, so, you know, it may be that that's just the expectation. But I agree with you, uh, Ryan Fournier, that, um, you know, someone like Rand Paul, who um, really isn't just given to the way that the Senate operates, he kind of does um, does his own thing in the sense of just following the Constitution. I mean, almost like what uh, Thomas Massey does on the House side, where, yes, they're, they're part of a team of the GOP, but they're willing to take principled stands when they need to. And that's the thing why I was very excited to see uh, Mike Johnson become Speaker of the House, because he was that way in the House. And even though he was in House leadership uh, before he took over as Speaker and, and ascended to the Speakership, um, he was very principled and he has maintained that. And, um, and and I'm glad to see him over Kevin McCarthy in the Speakership. I hope that we replace uh, McConnell with someone who isn't just going to take the status quo in the Senate, but actually advance on behalf of conservative principles. Um, so in just the last five minutes or so I have with you, uh, Ryan Fournier, and I so appreciate your time this morning. Let's turn to the Supreme Court and Trump's uh, two cases here. So they've now agreed to hear the immunity case related to January 6th, and they're also sitting on the Colorado ballot case. And now Illinois has said that they're the third state that's kicking Trump off the ballot. Um, just from a political perspective, um, how important right. is it that these cases get resolved constitutionally before November? It's it, well, there's a lot of reasons, but you know, the, the one thing that I said yesterday is that this is an egregious assault on democracy. You know, you have to think about the average American who comes home from their nine to five job, doesn't pay attention to what's really happening throughout the day, and they come inside, they eat dinner, and as they're watching dinner, they turn on the five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, whatever news, and they see. Uh, Trump removed from the Illinois ballot by a, by a judge, right? They see Trump removed from a Colorado ballot. They see, um, you know, the pundits and the host. 90%, we just had a survey come out, 90% of what is being said online about Trump by the media, by the pundits, is negative. Um, so people see this, and they're thinking they're losing their country because, you know, they may not understand fully what is all going on, but they see this, and it's the perception and so there are a lot of mad people right now, a lot of upset Americans. Um, now you have the Supreme Court who comes out yesterday with this uh, cert saying that they're going to view, you know, this immunity case. And you have Rachel Maddow on her show calling uh, it craven and calling the Supreme Court literal insurrectionists. 
Uh, you have pundits now. If you look at the articles coming out today, they're they're calling for the Supreme Court. They're calling for Clarence Thomas. Uh, they're calling for Roberts to step down. They think it's a political play to, you know, quote unquote, help Trump. But the reality is, is if they don't take this up, I really believe this is going to be uh, a very crucial piece in the downfall of Western civilization, uh, democracy, what we have fought for, for the, you know, the entire movement in the country, what we've done. Uh, it is going to lead to a downfall. And, it, you know, it's scary. It should scare everybody that you have judges that are so unhinged like this that are willing to do this. Um, with Democrats as their party registration. Who is the judge that did that in Illinois? Registered Democrat, um, which, which, which just happened yesterday. So there's a lot of stuff here that I think just scares the average American, scares me, and I know what's going on. I see it every day. You see it every day. It's not the country we grew up in. We never persecuted, uh, you know, political enemies, you know, Bush or Clinton or Obama. You know, these people weren't persecuted in the way that Trump has been persecuted. And they've launched wars that have cost this country billions of dollars. They've weaponized the intelligence bureaus against American citizens with the Patriot Act. Um, they, they, now they're going after political dissidents, right? You know, it, it, is, it has become so bad. And to the average person who is watching from home, um, that to me is the main concern. Um, mm. How they view this and how they see it and how they understand it. Because the public, you know, the, the left is sort of losing the PR war with this. It's starting to look more tyrannical than it is helping the nation. You know, and the left always, Ryan, um, as you and I know over, uh, you know, being there for the four years of Trump, the left always overplays their hand. And even though this started out oh, yeah. as a you know PR war against Trump and, um, and more than that, you know, and a lot of lawfare as well, um, I think people are kind of waking up to that and they're seeing a lot of this. Um, so hopefully that doesn't affect uh, how they go out and vote. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But Ryan Fournier, um, who is the founder of Students for Trump, you can follow him on social media. Always appreciate that. And we will be back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Well, if you are a fast food aficionado and, you know, some of us just, I, I personally love Chick-fil-A. How can you not love God's chicken? It's, it's just amazing. Uh, Wendy's yesterday at, was going viral because uh, reports were suggesting they were hinting at a possible surge pricing in the future, but then they backtracked because the company faced criticism for the earlier announcement. So this coming from the Hill, um, kind of how this story unfolded was during a February 15th investor call, Wendy's CEO, Kirk Tanner, said the company plans to spend about $20 million to roll out digital menu boards to all restaurants by the end of 2025. And if you've ever gone to, to Starbucks, you know, some of these, they already have those and they can, um, they can just put up your order, you know, right there. And you can, if you're in the drive through you can kind of uh, confirm, you know, yes, that's correct. Or, you know, like me that, um, Devin and Adam think I get frou-frou coffee, which is totally accurate. But I can be like, hey, you, you, you missed the caramel drizzle. They always miss the caramel drizzle, and that's the most important part. But um, Wendy's was going to roll out these digital menus. And Tanner, the CEO, said, we will begin testing more enhanced features like dynamic pricing and day part offering, along with AI-enabled menu changes and suggestive selling. So after widespread media reports that the company would employ Uber-like surge pricing, the company issued a statement saying it would not raise prices dynamically. So joining me now is our, uh, who has become the friend of the show, resident uh, economic expert, Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute. So Though this was um, this was just a really fascinating story. The the, the memes were hilarious um, because people were talking about you know buying um, the the uh, baconators and then reselling them during surge pricing for a profit and having you know kind of this turnover of assets and it was just it was hilarious how social media um, does this. But but really um, this kind of thing. Um, do you think Wendy's might have done this if it weren't for such a significant social media backlash? Well, I definitely think that th this is the future in many ways of, of how some of these companies are going to utilize AI, um, purely digital methods, um, now uh, to you know, maximize profit. Now, when it comes to this situation, and I don't want to, to uh, simply um, go along with the, you know, whatever the corporate line is, but you know, what they were claiming is that when they were discussing dynamic pricing, that it would be more like uh, reducing prices in slow times rather than the surge pricing model of Uber. Um, and so, if you take that, you know, then then in, in reality, this is kind of like a, a, a one way of thinking about it would be um, similar to you know the way that coupons have been used in slower seasons in the past to get customers in or. One interesting thing is, you know, one of the, the reasons why the, the McRib is a seasonal item is that uh, McDonald's would actually um, offer it based off of pork prices in the country. And so when pork prices fell down, they would offer it. So this idea of changing the menu, um, not obviously kind of an hour-by-hour -hour dynamic, but in a, um, you know, in, in a, a slower fashion, a kind of a seasonal fashion, um, that's a, an entirely new concept. This is kind of utilizing technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I expect this sort of behavior to go going forward. What will be interesting is the customer backlash if the prices are higher than expected going to the drive-up menu rather than lower than expected. Um, and obviously, with our larger environment of inflation, I, you know, I think there, there's been a level to which I think it, this is combined with the frustrations that people already have 
where you know the, the dollar menu at McDonald's is now three dollars. The the Taco Bell cravings menu is three dollars. Run the bucket was a few years ago, and so I think that's that combination of maybe some skepticism of AI, um, general concerns about you know, corporate greed, inflationary concerns in the grand economy. I think that was a big reason, and and some of the frustrations that some people have had leaving a bar too late and seeing how much they actually paid for an Uber. Those, those, those combination of factors, I think, really led to the blowback here. But in practice, in reality, this is not all that different than standard practice in the past, just with kind of the, the rapid nature of uh, modern technology. Yeah, and all of that really makes sense. And, um, you know, it, it, the Uber pricing and surge pricing um, even though it is frustrating. And, you know, when I was in D.C., um, I didn't have a car. I just relied exclusively on mm-hmm. Ubers um, because that was actually less expensive than paying for parking at my apartment and my destination, plus, you know, all the things that go into a car. And so in um, especially in larger cities, um, Ubers have, you know, have, have done a great job in terms of, um, of of ride share and things like that. But you could definitely tell when there was surge pricing if it was a standard route. But that makes a little bit more sense just because um, the the availability of cars is limited quantity where you don't have limited quantity Baconators, right? And so if it's just right. about demand versus actual supply and demand, then it would seem like this is more about corporate greed. Um, instead of, you know, maybe the CEO should have been more careful in how he rolled this out and not calling it dynamic pricing, just saying so we can rapidly, um, rather than having to, you know, print out everything, change all the menus, or have somebody um, verbally express, hey, um, the, the side of fries is 10 cents off today, we can have have our offerings and our sales be more dynamic and, and show. I mean, that that would be something that I think everybody could have just said, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. And, and obviously, there are seasonal items. So was this more of just a, a lack of PR awareness and how it was rolled out? Or um, could this be used... Still, by Wendy's and other companies, as something a little bit more corporate greed esque. Yeah, I think uh, it, this is a, a, a example of of just losing a PR battle from the get go. Um, and what's interesting is actually uh, looking at um, kind of the timeline of it. You know, this 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 original comment was kind of made, and it, it didn't really get waves until people started talking about it. So it it it, it was made during a, you know, a shareholder you know, conference call, whatever. And, and then it took kind of a few days and then someone came out and kind of described the surge pricing that hit the sort of, you know, Uber, you know, mindset there. And then it became this, this viral sensation. Um, and of course, you know, Wendy's, you know, has been one of the more, I, I think, uh, effective PR fast food companies, um, you know, with their, their viral social media team and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think this is something that got away from them. I'm not surprised that they, they backtracked as soon as, um, again, the, the, the assumption of, oh, they're going to you know, raise it during you know, peak lunch hours and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that definitely was, was something that got away from them. Um, but you, you're right in, in contrasting some of the, the, the underlying dynamics between you know, what goes on with an Uber and what goes on with, with, with say, a Wendy's. Now, obviously, there is a, you, know, you, you, can, you can have a, a traffic backup and that sort of stuff, but you know, Uber staff is not going to expand because of surge pricing, they might they might preemptively schedule that, but they are preemptively scheduling with the ex- expectation of whatever they have in their menu. Whereas the whole Uber model is to bring out drivers, um, you know, to, to bring more people in, to expand their capacities, um, 
with the unique, you know, independent contractor style model that Uber employs. Um, and of course, one of the advantages of, of driving or of using Uber in DC rather than say the Metro is an Uber is far like less likely to be on fire on any given day. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, but it, it, these are interesting ways of, of different types of companies trying to you know, navigate. And again, this is a whole new wave of technology and, and you know, things like Uber were, um, were, were very innovative in the way that, um, and allowing for all these, these real time pricing, um, of, of markets, which, you know, we, we see real, real time pricing in all different types of assets. Bringing it down to that kind of the, the consumer price model when things can change that that rapidly um, directly to consumers is, is a very you know it's, it's a very more a lot, lot more of a, a newer phenomenon. And again, I, I expect things like this to be attempted in other areas um, going forward. Yeah, and and that's a great point that um, that Uber doesn't have uh, their employees in the same way that a company like Wendy's does, where they have employees, they schedule them on shifts, and they can call more people if if they need to. I mean, Uber is um, you drive when you want as a driver, and that kind of flexibility. A lot of my drivers um, would have you know regular jobs, and then just say you know they could drive for an hour, and then you know turn off the app, or they could kind of do it at, at their leisure. And so um, that is an interesting phenomenon to try to have a business model to say we want to make sure that there's an incentive for the drivers, but also to make it affordable enough that people will choose um, Uber over Lyft or over the Metro, um, you know, or other uh, potential available um, options. And so, you know, uh, and, and you mentioned, and, and I just have to say real quick uh, that Wendy's has gone um, is just is different than a little a lot of the other fast food companies because of their social media and their branding. And this to me was interesting just because um, it was such a PR miss from a company that has been known for its PR. I think um, more than any other fast food company. And I have to say, I mean, Wendy's is the only fast food social media account that I actually follow on on X, formerly known as Twitter, because they're so funny and and their their whole bio says we like our tweets the way we like our fries hot crispy and better than anyone expects from a fast food restaurant and they have roasted um, so many public figures I mean whoever runs their account is just brilliant and so this type of uh, PR move that really wasn't rolled out well surprised me frankly that it was Wendy's I would have expected this maybe more from Burger King (laughs) absolutely or or, you know uh, at McDonald's uh could go out there with their, their broken ice cream machines, um, but yes, yes, I, I think uh, again, you know, and, and my, my, maybe 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 that that rascally king out there was the one that was really pushing uh, the the Uber surge pricing line out there behind the scenes. You know, the the, the covert wars between some of these fast food companies could be interesting in themselves. Yeah, but um, but so you know, moving forward into AI technology that is. Uh, with our technology that's able to have this kind of dynamic pricing that can be used nefariously. I mean, I, I think that this story also, um, Tho Bishop from the Mises Institute, my guest today, um, th- th- this also is something that most consumers aren't necessarily even realizing. I mean, we we do go to the store and if our regular, you know, box of Cheerios is a dollar more, we we look at that and we know that, but we're not necessarily aware of how some of these uh, new technologies can create such a dynamic environment. And so, you know, Elon Musk has been very much against um, AI or at least controlling it in a lot of ways. And he said it's an existential threat to humanity. I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, strong statement from someone like him. So what should the average person 
um, be aware of when it comes to the economy and, and the potential ability of companies, not just dynamic um, fast food menus, but to be aware of with the um, employment of AI? Well, I, I think some of the, the I think one of the problems is that AI kind of gets, gets thrown around as, as I, think, I think it's often kind of overly simplified. And, and you always have this phenomenon, right, where, where new technologies are sort of quick, quickly sort of demonized or looked at with suspicion as, oh, well, they're going to be used against us. And so I think some of the, the broader concerns, right, when we think of AI, you know, when we think of, of you know, uh, robots, but there's concerns about, oh, well, robots, robots are going to take our jobs. Well, you know, it, with, a, with a certain AI capacity, well, you know, that but that certain certain jobs would be affected, but specialized jobs would not. And the jobs, the robots could actually you know, the buildup of capital, the buildup of more advanced technology um, that does reduce the amount of manpower needed to do certain things. But it also allows for more production, allows for more efficiency, allows for labor to be used in other sectors. Right? We wouldn't have uh, dog daycares if we didn't have a lot of smaller you know, kind of more menial tasks being automated or, or moved elsewhere and the like. Um, I think they, the combination of AI with military technology, with drones and the like, that's, that I think is a very valid concern. But I think a lot of the, the concerns about AI are, are, are over-exaggerated. I, you know, mainly AI is just a, a very effective, very quick way of, of, of utilizing data. And the reality is that, you know, for the most part, Businesses are restricted, you know, particularly when it comes to pricing and things like that, on what consumers can pay. And so I think the idea that you know, AI is going to be used to you know, surprise us with, with price hikes where we don't like it, right? I, I think a lot of that comes from the experiences with things like Uber, which, again, there's, I think there's a good reason for that model. But I think you're just as likely to get efficiencies um, where, okay, well, you know, this, this product isn't – selling particularly well, this sort of stuff. We've got the inventory. We want to make some profit off of it. You know, it, it, if, if it's a way of simply kind of, uh, of, of making it more efficient to have micro you know, sales or, you know, all these traditional ways that uh, commercial outlets function, um, you know, where you, they, they, they get inventory out quicker by discounting it and they, they're going to hit certain windows. I, I think the idea that this is going to be used to, to exploit or, or, you know, surprise customers on the high end of things. I, I, I would be surprised if that ends up being a constant factor because the companies that are going to do that are going to turn off customers. Again, just as the perception of this did. Um, I think that the, the broader dynamic, though, of, of thinking that AI is a replacement for human entrepreneur, for, for human entrepreneurism, for human, you know, that, that is a, a genuine threat to the unique aspects of what humanity can achieve. We, we are far from, from anything resembling that capability. I think there are very valid questions over whether it could ever get to that capability. Um, and so I, I, I would only caution not that, you know, I'm a, a, a you know, a, a, a defender uh, reflexively of, of all modern technological advances, but historically, a lot of the concerns that we were hearing about AI have been made about. Uh, the internet or online shopping or, you know, various aspects in the past. I mean, you can go back to, you know, in, in early industrialization, yeah. right? You know, there's all sorts of, 
of of these tales about you know future technological dystopian. That's a good point, and um, yeah. So we just always have to be careful and use these things in a good way and not necessarily the bad. Though Bishop, thanks, and uh, you can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. Make it a great day, and maybe go to Wendy's. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.